This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Here's a tip you've probably heard someone offer to you at some point in your life. If you want to get along with people, just don't bring up politics or religion. The meta message being that both are divisive issues that can only drive a stake between people in relationship. We've talked about the political side of that bromide before on Peace Talks Radio. Today, we'll consider the religious side. Good morning. How are you this morning? All right. Did you have a nice breakfast? On a recent Saturday morning, about 100 people have gathered at an Albuquerque, New Mexico meeting hall for pancakes and a somewhat unusual prayer service. On this weekend, when others may be separating into churches, mosques, temples, and synagogues of religions they might identify most closely with, and atheists and agnostics are choosing not to worship, this particular group, which includes representatives of many religions and cultures, has come to this hall run by the local chapter of the Baha'i Faith. Well, on behalf of the local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Albuquerque, I'd like to welcome you to our first annual Prayers for Peace. When I first announced it, I announced it as Prayers for Pancakes, but it's Prayers for Peace. (laughs) What followed was a program of songs and prayers from many different religious and cultural traditions, all reflecting on the hope for peace, tolerance, and understanding between the peoples of the world. Tim Mings led a group that organized today's event, and he talked with Suzanne Kreider. We pick a topic, such as peace, or love, or racial harmony, and then we pull uh, writings together from the Holy Scriptures, from faiths from around the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Baha'i. And it's amazing how often the writings from very different cultures, very different Religions all agree on the same topic, have very similar teachings. The Baha'i faith focuses to a great deal on world peace. Yes. What do Baha'is say about world peace? Is it possible? That's one of the fundamental teachings of the Baha'i faith, uh, is unity, a unity of mankind. They teach that we're all members of the same family, that as mankind strives towards unity, that peace will be natural. Peace will happen as we realize that we're not competitors, that we're not supposed to be fighting and taking each other's things. We're supposed to be loving each other and getting along and helping each other. Suzanne also asked some members of this diverse audience for their views on religious tolerance. Whoever believes in God, in whatever name, no matter what, it doesn't matter. We are sisters and brothers. We live in one earth, and we need to live like sisters and brothers and in peace and unity. That's what is important, not religion. Mm. It makes me sad to see people fighting uh, in, under the name of the religion. Or when, when I see that there is war around the world, because of difference of ideas. It really makes me sad because it shouldn't really be like that because what the purpose of religion is, is not war and fighting. And most of the places on the earth, that's what is going on over ideas. 
So I don't want that happen to me or my son, you know, my child. Truly loving humanity is what is important. Can you think of a time in your life where you were ever intolerant of somebody else's religion? Not so much intolerant of their religion, but more not able to understand and wanting to. And I think a lot of intolerance, a lot of hate is based on fear of what we don't understand. And so I would say that some people tackle that fear by reacting to it, by becoming defensive and hostile. And for myself, I tackle it by being more inquisitive and trying to take time, though defensively, to understand what's going on. Should people be tolerant of all religions? If you really believe, as I do, that God is in charge, there might be things I wouldn't particularly care to be a part of or people that I don't want to particularly be in their group um, throughout the world. But I even feel when I think about the war that it's none of our business how they worship. You know, we shouldn't be bothering other people's religions. We didn't discover them or create them or... It's not our job to approve of them. We can disapprove of what actions, but we can't disapprove of people's religion. Leila Momenzade, Heron Boyce, and Patricia Quinn, all attending a recent Interfaith Prayer for Peace event held at the Albuquerque, New Mexico Baha'i Center. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're exploring religious tolerance. With many of the world's violent hotspots these days the result of religious differences magnified to extreme levels, we pose these questions for daily life. What does it mean to be tolerant of another's religious beliefs? Is it enough to just live and let live? How should one respond to an effort to convert to another's religion? What's an appropriate response to religious extremism that calls for attacks on non-believers? Is religious pluralism a possible answer to religious conflict? We'll be talking about these issues with Dr. Ibu Patel, a founder and executive director of the Interfaith Youth Corps, or IFYC an organization that encourages religious young people to actually strengthen their religious identities and at the same time foster inter-religious understanding and service. Dr. Patel received his doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship. He is co-editor of the book Building the Interfaith Youth Movement, Beyond Dialogue to Action, and he's the author of Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation. Later, we'll hear from two college students interning at the IFYC. But first, from the IFYC offices in Chicago, Dr. Ibu Patel talks with Suzanne Kreider. I've seen a series of bumper stickers that's called the Oxymoron series. And oxymoron number 43 is religious tolerance. Is that an oxymoron? Not at all. Uh, Religious tolerance isn't an oxymoron at all. There are there are wonderful stories and wonderful scripture in all the religious traditions about the importance of of doing more than tolerating somebody from a different background, uh, actually building a relationship with them, actually serving them, actually cooperating with them to serve others. So in the Holy Quran, one of my favorite lines comes from Surah 49, that God made us 
different nations and tribes that we may come to know one another. And the two young women who are going to speak with you a little bit later will share from their own traditions, Christian and Jewish, uh, the scriptures and the stories that call them to serve others who are different and serve with others who are different for uh, for the benefit of the entire world. So I think that the the real morons here, um, taking the, the moron part of the term oxymoron, are the ones who think that, that religion can only dominate others. And, and unfortunately, we have two groups of those morons right now. One group are a set of religious people themselves um, that Al-Qaeda is, is uh, the most heinous example of. They think that, that their religion should only dominate others. But the other group are, are this group of rabid secularists, people like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Ian Hersey Ali, who are frankly taking their talking points from Al-Qaeda because they're agreeing with Al-Qaeda when they say that the only thing religion can ever produce is domination. And that is simply factually wrong. I mean, where did Martin Luther King come from? Where did Dorothy Day come from? Where did Mother, where did Mother Teresa come from? They came from religious traditions. And I would say that the 20th century would have been far darker had it not been for their presence. David Little's a scholar at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he outlines three possible levels of looking at tolerance. We can be indifferent, we can endure, or we can learn. And in your work at the Interfaith Youth Corps, you really promote that third level of tolerance. You promote learning something from different beliefs. But wouldn't indifference be good enough? Wouldn't it just be great if we didn't kill each other? At the Interfaith Youth Corps, we don't use the term tolerance. We use the term pluralism. And I think pluralism is both more important and less controversial than how David Little describes tolerance. And I'll tell you why. Because pluralism is a pragmatic situation on earth. It does not describe how we view the other person's theology. It describes the type of sociology we want to build together. It doesn't describe whether we think the other person's version of heaven or salvation is correct. It describes how we want to build a city or a campus or a community with one another. At the Interfaith Youth Corps, we talk of pluralism in the terms of how people from different backgrounds can live together in ways characterized by understanding and cooperation. So when I sit with a Hindu or a Buddhist, I might have dramatic disagreements with his or her theology. In fact, I might have dramatic disagreements with the way that a lot of Muslims interpret their tradition. But my question isn't, do I agree with your theology? My question is, can we live in some sort of mutual trust and loyalty together, number one, as citizens? And number two, are there actually ways that we can find common ground within the social action dimensions of our tradition so that we can actually serve others together? And you might have a very different idea of salvation than me. But that doesn't mean that we can't try to, to reduce homelessness in our city together. And, and I think that that's the future. The future isn't arguments over theology or arguments over salvation. The future is common action towards the common good. Ibu, in your book, Acts of Faith, you talk a lot about the faith line. What is that? The term the faith line comes uh, from W.E.B. Du Bois's great insight 100 years ago that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line. And we are 
shamefully far from fully solving the challenge of racial equality and racial harmony. But one look at the news reports of the past 20 years and you see clearly that that religion seems to be uh, the motivating factor for much of our violence and tension today, from Northern Ireland to South Asia, and the Middle East to Middle America. But the interesting thing about the way we see the faith line here at the Interfaith Youth Corps is that it does not divide Christians and Muslims or Hindus and Jews. The faith line divides religious totalitarians from religious pluralists. And I described to you a little bit earlier what a religious pluralist was. It's somebody who is actively working together to cultivate understanding and cooperation between people from different backgrounds. Let me say a little bit about what a religious totalitarian is. A religious totalitarian is somebody who believes that their way of being, believing, and belonging is the only legitimate way on earth and seeks to suffocate all others. And and that's a really important kind of uh, distinction because I don't think religious traditionalists are totalitarians. I don't think evangelical Christians are totalitarians. I don't think that, that people who are orthodox or conservative are totalitarians. Many of those people might, in fact, think that, that their neighbors are theologically mistaken. They might even seek to convert their neighbors. But if they were to attain power, they would not seek to suffocate the ways of being, believing, and belonging of the other people in their community. So when I talked to Rick Warren uh, at the Aspen Institute a few years ago, he is an evangelical who thinks that my religious path might be misguided, but he's very supportive of the work of the Interfaith Youth Corps because he believes that's the kind of work that needs to happen on earth. Rick Warren is not a totalitarian. How do we build bridges to totalitarians? Is that possible? Well, I actually think that there are very, very, very few people on earth who are actually totalitarians. And what we need to do is marginalize those people. I think that the mistake that a lot of progressive people make and a lot of people involved in the interfaith movement make is they think that all people who are evangelical or who are conservative or who are traditionalist in their, in their religious orientation are, uh, are their enemies. And that's simply not true. The vast majority of evangelicals in America um, are, are on our side. They incline towards pluralism. We have to stop making them feel bad that their theology might be different than ours. It's perfectly fine if they think that they're the only ones who are going to be saved. It's even fine if they want to convert you or me. What most of them are ultimately also about is how can we come together to serve others together. Is it fine, though, that people want to convert us? Because isn't there a continuum, really, from pluralism to totalitarianism? And in your book, Acts of Faith... You write a lot about your involvement with the Catholic worker movement. You lived in several of the Catholic worker houses, and nobody ever tried to convert you. Talk about the impetus behind religious conversion, psychologically or sociologically. Well, several of our great religious traditions, essentially Islam and Christianity, and in some versions, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, are evangelical traditions, which means that most of the believers who are part of those traditions believe that part of their call is to convert others. My conviction is that the the call to convert others is is a perfectly legitimate call, and it's a call that is frankly protected by free speech. The problem is when certain religious believers think that the only way 
that they can ever relate to people of other traditions is to seek to convert them. So here at the Interfaith Youth Corps, on a staff of about 17 people, uh, we have a handful of evangelical Christians, and we have a handful of pretty traditional Muslims. And they might, in fact, be praying for the other person's soul in their various mosques or churches. But when they come to work together, they're all putting their shoulders to the wheel of building interfaith cooperation. And I think that that's, that's, the, that's a, an exceptional world to work for, a world where people have different ideas of heaven but work well on earth together. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're talking today about religious tolerance with our guest, Dr. Ibu Patel, executive director of the Interfaith Youth Corps and author of the book, Acts of Faith. He's speaking to us from his office in Chicago. In your book, you write about your feelings on September 11th and shortly after when you saw the photographs of the 19 hijackers. And I'd like for you to read a quote um, from page 126 in your book, you start out that that um, description saying, for the most part, the hijackers looked unsettlingly normal, perhaps even a little naive, more like the faces in a high school yearbook than on a wanted poster. Could you read from the end of that page, Ibu? Sure. I thought about the news reports I heard consistently about religious violence in India, Sri Lanka, the Middle East, Northern Ireland, West Africa, wherever. The ages of the people doing most of the fighting, killing, and dying were between 15 and 30. The world had recently woken up to the increasing link between religion and violence, but there was something else going on that most people seemed to be missing. The shock troops of religious extremism were young people. And you make a strong case for how Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber, and Osama bin Laden were both recruited at very young ages by religious fundamentalist groups. What do you wish could have been different for them as boys? Well, frankly, I wish that those of us who believe strongly in religious pluralism would understand that for us to win, for our great idea to characterize the 21st century, our movement has to be a movement led by young people that if religious extremism is a movement of young people taking action, then interfaith cooperation cannot only be a movement of senior theologians talking. It also has to be a a movement of young people building what we call the cathedrals of pluralism. And and I'm proud that you're going to be talking to two of those exceptional young people later on this show, Adina and Whitney. So I wish that those of us who, who believe in this idea were much more active in working with and empowering uh, young people to actually make this idea of religious pluralism a concrete reality on earth. We'll have more with Dr. Ibu Patel on religious tolerance, and we'll talk with two students in his Interfaith Youth Corps program when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com to hear today's program again and others in our series. Today's program considers religious tolerance, and we're talking with Dr. Ibu Patel, who directs the Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago, a program that encourages youth from different religious backgrounds to celebrate their respective religious identities while working together in community service. Suzanne Kreider talked with an intern in the program, Adina Tebloom. Um, I'm a student at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And what are you studying there? I don't know yet. I just finished my first year, so probably religion and something else. But I have a while still to decide, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> what was your interest in the Interfaith Youth Corps? Um, well, actually, I kind of have, I think, a funny story about how I got here. But um, Ibu had been talking to a woman named Emily Soloff, who's in my community, and she came to our youth group to kind of pitch the idea that we would want to work with the Interfaith Youth Corps. And I actually was late to the meeting, and all my all my youth group colleagues were really scared to go to the meeting. So they're like, well, Adina's not here. We'll make her go. So I showed up at this meeting with Ibu, and it was actually about a year, I think, after 9-11, and we just had a really powerful discussion with a couple other um, Ismaili Muslims that he had brought and a couple Catholic students about kind of how we should be hospitable to new immigrants and that if we could kind of change the culture of hospitality in our country, maybe things like this, you know, not 9-11 itself, the attacks, but that the ramifications of that were a lot of hatred and hate crimes persecuted against people who maybe looked like Muslims but were or weren't. Um, and so how could we stop those things and, and end the sort of hate crimes that happen in this country and that that story and you know all three of the Abrahamic faiths share share the story of Abraham welcoming the angels into his tent which is something that I really identify with in my tradition and having that reiterated by Muslims and and Christians was so powerful that I just decided to stick with it and see what we could do so go back a little bit and talk about how you got involved in your youth group um, well, okay, so I went to private Jewish school from K through 8th um, to Solomon Schechter, and I started to feel, I think, a little bit boxed in by it, and I, I couldn't really put my finger on why I wanted to get out, but I was starting to feel, you know, religious school has a tendency, I think they're trying to do such a good job that they start to push it, push your faith on you a little bit, and so I sat my parents down, and I was like, listen, I really want to go to public school. And my parents were really anxious, I think. And so my dad and I struck up this deal, which was that I would study with a rabbi once a week and that I would have to attend my synagogue's youth group. And so then about a year into it, I became the social action vice president and just kind of organized service projects and did all that. So it it kind of made sense, I think, for me to make the link to the Interfaith Youth Corps because of how central service learning and service work is in their methodology. So your dad giving you a little freedom actually allowed you to get super involved. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think by the end of the first year, actually, um, that we did this, we had organized a service project in a retirement home and, um, you know, wrapped presents for kids who maybe don't have families who are willing to provide for them on Christmas. That, like, this Mayor Daly, I think, runs a, a kind of like a this service where you can buy a present for someone, the kids write wishes, and then people wrap the presents for them. So we had done that. We'd spoken at the mayor's interfaith breakfast, and then we'd done a fundraiser. And I remember my mom just being blown away at the fundraiser and coming up to Ibu and just thanking him with tears in her eyes for really opening my eyes and our family. Mm. So, Yeah, because 
What was so powerful for your mom? I think the story that she tells is a little bit embarrassing, but that when I was really little, I had been scared, I think, by an African-American guy working at McDonald's, and, and my mom had suddenly freaked out. And, you know, my parents were, I think, just at the point where they were about to get divorced, and I'm sure that this got rolled into all of that. But she said, you know, we have to pull her from private school. This is impossible. They're teaching our daughter racism. And I don't know what changed, but I think after that, they really rethought how they were bringing me into the world and rethought how they were teaching me. And I think when I put my foot forward kind of and said, listen, this is something that I want to do, they were really happy to get on board, even if they were a little bit tentative, because everybody who wants to raise their child of faith wants them to marry someone of the same faith and feel comfortable in it. But I think, you know, that kind of butts up against that they want them to be a religious pluralist, at least in my family, and be one who serves the community. And so they really want you to try and find your own balance between that. And I think the Interfaith Youth Corps has certainly given me that. And I think my parents were so happy. Your parents sound really cool, but didn't they teach you about hospitality? How come you have to go somewhere and learn hospitality from the Interfaith Youth Corps? Well, I don't think you learn it. I think you enact it. I think, you know, I never really realized with the interns the first week we did like we went to Breaking Bread, which is like a a soup kitchen, but where the, I guess different than a soup kitchen, they treat the the people who come as guests and they wait on them at tables. And we were sitting around talking about, you know, we didn't really realize, many of us, until we left the comforts of our family home that our families actually really did enact hospitality and we didn't realize, you know. As a little kid, it was customary for me and my dad to take the extra change out of his pocket and put it into a sedaka box right before Shabbat every week. And I just thought that everybody did that and that everybody invited people less fortunate to them and everybody tithed 10% of their income. And it wasn't until actually I visited a friend of mine from college over her Christmas break and, and her house just wasn't as warm and welcoming as mine. I was like, wait, not everyone is like my family, you know? And I just, it was so ingrained, I think, that I almost couldn't point out what was going on until I came to a place where I met other people mm. who did the same thing. So I, don't, I think certainly my parents taught me about hospitality, but that I didn't realize what it was until I had left that community, which is so nurturing. That's fascinating. Yeah, just the different varieties of hospitality, and then we have to have a tolerance for that, too. Yeah, definitely. It's really fun, I think, to hear from different people about what they do. And I'm actually writing the report as my intern job for the campaign that Eva was talking about, the Days of Interfaith Youth Service. And it's really fun to see all the different projects. You know, we had like 38 sites and all the different projects that people have done and what they thought was, you know, most powerful and, and most needed in their community. So, As a woman of the Jewish faith, what was the most powerful interfaith experience you've had? Whoa. Um... Well, when I worked in high school on the Chicago Youth Council, I became really good friends with a girl who actually went to my high school, but I would never have met if it had not been for the Interfaith Youth Corps. And she wore a job and was a really devout Muslim. And, you know, I guess I consider myself a moderately, you know, religious or observant Jew. And it was interesting that, you know, first we were really, I think, a little bit, not on edge, but unsure of how to deal with each other. And as we spent, you know, two or three years together on the youth council, kind of really figuring out our friendship, we would suddenly have moments where, you know, Aisha was her name, and she would come to me and say, you know, listen, I'm struggling with this part of being a woman in Islam. You know, can you tell me about Judaism and what does it say? And, And some of the things we would talk about was like, you know, should we be equal in prayer? And how does modesty affect our lives? And even though I make really different choices than her, Judaism and Islam are so similar 
at least in a lot of the ways they dictate about women, but also so difficult when you're trying to live in a modern society and, you know, where modernity really dictates equality, but religions dictate, or at least I think Islam and Judaism often traditional interpretations of them kind of dictate um, separate spheres for men and women and separate responsibilities, not necessarily superior or inferior, but just different, that it is kind of difficult to try and figure out how you can how you can um, coalesce and kind of make a um, cohesive identity out of those two kind of um, juxtaposed worlds that we live in. And, and so she and I could really talk about that. And she would say, oh, like, just like this, you know, in Islam, it's like this, or in Judaism, it's like that. And, and I remember telling her about Rashi, who's this kind of great biblical scholar that he allowed his daughters, because he only had daughters, to take on any ritual that was originally assigned to men and how inspiring that was for me that, you know, I moved to take on some of the rituals that are allotted to men and, and seeing Aisha just get so excited and wanting to go back to Islam and her tradition and see if such a person existed for her that she could take inspiration from. And for me, that was really moving because I'd been so inspired by her. But now finally she, I finally, I don't know, but she was inspired by something that I had said and something my tradition brought that was really unique. Adina Tibloom. Thanks so much for talking with us. Sure, it's my pleasure. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Suzanne Kreider. Let's go back to Dr. Ibu Patel, Executive Director of the Interfaith Youth Corps. He's talking to us from his office in Chicago, Illinois. Acts of Faith, your book, begins with a wonderful quote from Rumi, start a huge, foolish project like Noah. And it was at the United Religions Initiative Global Summit that you really hatched the idea for the Interfaith Youth Corps. What was your huge foolish vision? The huge foolish vision was, why is it that we can't have young people from all religious backgrounds coming together to do concrete service projects that that made people's lives better in a tangible way through tutoring, through cleaning rivers through building houses and then use those service projects as opportunities for those young people to share what motivated them from their religious traditions to serve others. That was the huge foolish idea. And I think that the the hugeness and the foolishness of it was the notion of why can't this characterize the world in which we live? In other words, why can't every religious community on earth have its youth group involved in interfaith service projects? Why can't every college campus in the whole world be taking religious diversity seriously in this manner? Why can't every youth organization that has religious young people involved be nurturing this ethos of religious pluralism within its programs? Why can't, why can't interfaith youth service work be just like, be just as ubiquitous as Little League or YMCA's? Talk about the uniqueness of your methodology, though, because it's more than just social action. Well, I think the uniqueness of the Interfaith Youth Corps methodology comes down to three basic points. One is shared values between different religious traditions. So a lot of interfaith uh, endeavors um, try to focus on theology or they try to resolve political problems. What we say at the Interfaith Youth Corps is certainly matters of theology and matters of politics are important. But we actually think that religious traditions have really important values in common. There's this set of universal values across religious traditions, and they include mercy and compassion and service and charity and hospitality. 
And what we really need to do is focus on how different traditions have unique narratives to those universal values. So that's, I think, component number one of the Interfaith Youth Corps methodology. Component number two is all of those values that I mentioned, service, mercy, charity, compassion, they're all what we call actionable values. In other words, you can do a service project. You can do a hospitality project. You can do a, a charity project. It's not, it's not simply an abstract notion. It can be something very tangible. And the third part is storytelling, which is how do you get young people who are doing these projects that exemplify these shared values, how do you get them to tell the stories of how their religion inspires them to do this work? And that's when I think people really, really connect with each other personally. It's when they're able to tell their stories to each other. It's when a a Jewish girl and a Muslim girl are building a house together, and the Jewish girl says, you know, two weeks ago my rabbi gave this beautiful sermon um, on this aspect of the Torah and and that's one of the reasons I came today because I, I want to be a part of this of this notion of of tikkun olam. I want to be a part of repairing the world, and and I feel like building this house with you, uh, my Muslim friend, is is being a part of that. And that's when you those those kind of micro narratives are so important in relationship building. Yeah, then we don't have to argue about who goes to heaven. Right, exactly. You, you're giving them something else uh, to focus on. What we call the mutually enriching narrative instead of the mutually exclusive narrative. Ibu, how does your organization, the Interfaith Youth Corps, bring young people together? Well, in in two ways. Number one is we have a very active campaign uh, in spaces and institutions where young people are at, and that's religious communities and college campuses. So uh, we send speakers and trainers out to campuses and religious communities all the time to uh, to talk to young people about the importance of religious pluralism, to tell them that that they're the ones who have to be the architects of the cathedrals of religious pluralism, and to train them in the methodology that I just articulated. So that's one way, is this kind of, this campaign through campuses and and religious communities. And and the second way is really focusing on the entrepreneurship of young people themselves and, and, and ask them to advance the movement in the circles that they spend the most time in, which are, of course, with other young people. It sounds like you got a bunch of great stories, uh, young person to young person, but is it working on a bigger level, a sociological level? Well, I think that part of it is that the central insight of the Interfaith Youth Corps, which is we're living in a world where religious totalitarians have been very effective at mobilizing young people for their cause, and the only way to to defeat that, the only way to build a world of mutual trust and loyalty is to have young people at the center of building religious pluralism is is kind of a clear and sharp insight that when people like Bill Clinton and Karen Hughes at the State Department um, and uh, the Prime Minister of, of New Zealand and the Alliance of Civilizations at the United Nations and people at the National Security Council heard it, they thought to themselves, well, they, those people seem to be onto something. And so over the past two or three years, we've been invited to a lot of these forums, and I've presented at the Clinton Global Initiative, and I've had probably 10 meetings at the State Department, and we have now had a presence in six continents all over the world, oftentimes invited by um, high-level people like the Prime Minister's Office to come make presentations at conferences. 
and and a huge part of what we tell them is here is what we're doing at the Interfaith Youth Corps. But the big goal here is not for us to simply make a presentation. It's for us to help nurture this interfaith youth movement here in Australia or here in Jordan or here in New Zealand or here in England. And so uh, right now as we speak, there are 20 young people from Jordan who are here in the United States working with 20 young people from Chicago uh, because of a, a program that Queen Runya of Jordan said, we've got to start you know, we've got to make sure that the Interfaith Youth Corps uh, is running exchange programs between different countries and different continents. And so, you know, because of the uh, of the catal- catalytic kind of action of Queen Rani and Bill Clinton, and President Clinton actually um, uh, was so supportive of this that he invited me to have dinner with him and, and talk about it with him uh, a few months ago. We now have an international Interfaith Youth Exchange Program. And the way we think here at the Interfaith Youth Corps is why can't there be 500 delegations of young people from different cities all over the world coming together on a continuous basis to uh, go to other countries and to talk about how their different religions inspire them to serve others and then to actually do those service projects. In a moment, more with Dr. Ibu Patel on religious tolerance and another student in his Interfaith Youth Corps program when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com to hear all of the programs in our series, including today's, which is considering religious tolerance. With so much violence in the world being triggered by religious differences, we're exploring a program headquartered in Chicago called the Interfaith Youth Corps. Its founder is Dr. Ibu Patel, Ph.D. and author of the book Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim the struggle for the soul of a generation. He says his program promotes religious pluralism by encouraging young people to embrace their respective religious identities while seeking to understand other religions and working together in community service. Suzanne Kreider talked with another intern in the program, Whitney Barth, a senior at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Well, my interest um, in interfaith work uh, began actually when I was in high school. Um, I w- have been born and raised Lutheran, and I had the opportunity to um, partake in a three-week program at Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. And during that program, I had the um, the, the opportunity to meet with a Holocaust survivor, um, Alfred Tibor, who is um, also a sculptor. And he spoke to our group, and he... He was a strong, strong advocate that we that he challenged us to um, to live lives of love rather than hate, 
And I thought it was so powerful that someone who had endured so, endured so much could stand before us and say, don't meet hate with hate, but meet hate with love, and to go out into the world and, and live that. And um, throughout my time at the seminary, I had that opportunity to meet with diverse groups of people and to come together um, for that com- common action. Um, and it just really made me feel alive, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I felt that it really connects with my tradition, which is, like I said, um, Lutheran. And, you know, I feel that Jesus calls us to, to love one another and to reach out to one another. Um, and I think that it's so inspiring to see that other people, especially young people, are living out um, a call to action for that kind of common good, but from their own tradition. And I, I find that is one of the most inspiring things I've, I've ever been a part of. What does it inspire you to do at the Interfaith Youth Corps? Well, um, as a student at Miami University, I've been um, involved with getting some interfaith initiatives happening there. And the Interfaith Youth Corps has really um, kind of broadened my horizons in that regard. It's, it's, I feel like I'm kind of connected to a, a network of people who are, who are committed to making this a pluralistic society happen. And... Um, I th- it's just really ins- really a great opportunity to um, connect with the other interns as well as the people who work here. And I, it has really inspired me to go back to my community in Oxford and, and even beyond, as I said, I'm a senior, um, and to to kind of like I can throw ideas off of the people here and see what they think and like different communities, how we deal with different things. And um, it's just I think I've, I've kind of come away with a whole new outlook on how we can approach interfaith work through these kind of shared values. so Talk about some of the social action projects that you've been involved with. Well, like I said, after um, I had the opportunity to meet with Alfred Tibor um, while I was at Trinity Seminary, um, we also had the opportunity to meet with diverse religious leaders who came together as a part of a nonviolent protest um, because there had been acts of violence done to a local Jew- Jewish community and a local Catholic community. And just to stand together with those those individuals as a part of something much larger um, than myself, this kind of community of love that was coming together for this kind of action. Um, That was a very powerful moment in my life. And then at Miami, um, as a part of their Interface Circle student organization that that I helped co-found, we have taken on initiatives such as the Stop the Hate Rally, where we share sort of stories of instances of intolerance, but also instances of cooperation that our students and have, have, have endured, but also have participated in, um, in terms of cooperation and also global stories of, of inspiration. So. As a senior in college, what's the hardest part about really standing for pluralism? It sounds kind of scary. <laughs> um, let's see. The hardest thing about standing for pluralism, I think, I think is realizing that at this point in time, not everyone is going is going to kind of buy it, and kind of how do we approach the people who are not necessarily you know on the same page, um, and and convincing I think partly convincing other religious people that we are not out to either convert them to a different religion or to um, undermine their religious teachings in any way, but to learn to help realize that we're coming together for a common action so that we can um, empower one another. And so I think that's a challenge. I also wonder if there's pressure from within your faith. Do people call you a traitor to the Lutheran faith? 
No, um, actually not at all. I have not had that within my own community. Um, I'm, I've been happy to say that, that many people have been very supportive of the work um, that I feel committed to do. Whitney, what's your vision 30 years from now of how the world will be different in terms of pluralism? My vision for 30 years from now would be that this kind of pluralism that we talk about, you know, affirming our shared values, affirming our own religious identity and learning from one another is the way of life. This is commonplace for our young people, and they're excited about it. Whitney Barth, I'd like to thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Suzanne Kreider. Let's go back to Dr. Ibu Patel, Executive Director of the Interfaith Youth Corps and author of the book Acts of Faith, The Story of an American Muslim, The Struggle for the Soul of a Generation. You have a Ph.D. in the sociology of religion. Is religion more about our internal personal experience, or is it more about what we do in the outer world? Well, the the definition that I like the best comes from Wilfred Cantwell Smith, and he uses a term called faith. And what he says is that that faith is the way that the individual or the community of believers connects to the cumulative historical tradition uh, that we normally call religion. And so when I look at Islam, it is, it's a large tradition whose source points are uh, the Quran and the Prophet made the peace and blessings of God be upon him uh, and the, the ways and sayings of the Prophet. But there's also a lot more to Islam. There's the poetry of Rumi. There's the philosophy of Ibn Arabi. There's uh, beautiful calligraphy. There's the architecture of the Taj Mahal. And when I look at Islam broadly and I think of myself as a believing Muslim, I ask myself, how do I connect with the breadth of that tradition? Uh, Which parts of it resonate most deeply with me? So I think about religion uh, I, I think about the relationship between the believer and the tradition as the most central aspect of what we might call religion or what Cantwell Smith calls faith. And for me personally, what is most inspiring about religion is its social action dimensions. It's, it's, it's call of what we human beings are meant to do together on earth. It sounds like you're talking about both then because there's got to be that internal connection that feeds or drives the social action. I, I think that that's right. And that's why, you know, in this book, Acts of Faith, um, I, I, there's this kind of constant churning and gnawing within me as a young person who is not particularly religious. Uh, and, and it's because I didn't feel a sense of internal connection even as I was doing external social action. And it, it wasn't until it kind of all clicked and all harmonized both internally and externally my kind of orientation towards the divine, my relationship with the tradition of Islam, and how it supported my work in the world, that I felt kind of like a full, coherent human being. Uh, and that, that's really what the story of a lot of the book is about. Talk about that internal experience, though, because in college you practiced Buddhist meditation, and it morphed into Muslim prayer. Were they the same thing on some level? Well, I think what was happening to me at college was this deep desire for a connection to the divine. And I was interested in Buddhist prayer, and I did what I thought was my version of Buddhist prayer, which was, you know, kind of sitting cross-legged with my back straight in silence. 
and and I tried to focus on nothingness, which is you know what my version of Zen meditation was. Um, what I found was that the Shia Muslim mantra that my mother would whisper into my ear as a child, Ya Ali, Ya Muhammad, kept on coming into my head. And for some short time, I, I tried to kind of move it out of my head because I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to do Buddhist meditation. And then ultimately, what I realized was, this is who I am. I, I'm, I'm a Muslim since birth and before. And what I need to do is figure out what that means to me. I need to figure out how to kind of align the fact of my internal orientation as a Muslim and the fact of my social action life. So that's kind of a narrative answer to your question. Uh, the analytic part of that answer, Suzanne, is I don't think Buddhist prayer and Muslim prayer is the same thing. But I do think that there is a common core to all prayer. And what is important to me is that that – I connect to God in the particular language of prayer that that I feel most resonates with me. Um, and I have admiration for all sorts of languages of prayer, whether that prayer is in Sanskrit or whether it's in Hebrew or whether it's in Greek or Latin. But when I pray, I pray in Arabic because that's the, the language of the holy book that that uh, is my holy book. Ibu, in your book, Acts of Faith, you talk about in high school, uh, your friends from a variety of religions never talked about their faith. And I remember that too. And I think it was, for us, it was a fear that people were going to proselytize or try to convert each other. And what do you advise people who have that fear? How can we come together even if people do have a really strong uh, evangelical commitment? Well, as as the great scholar Wilford Cantwell Smith would say, religious traditions are broad, and there certainly are dimensions of traditions which call on their believers to seek to convert others. And as I said earlier, I affirm those dimensions. I think that they're that 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 they're important. But there are also dimensions of our traditions which call on believers to work with others who are different to make the common good a better place. So what I would say to people is what they need to learn is how, is they need to learn to be fluent in the dimensions of their tradition which emphasize cooperation which emphasize service to others. So in Islam for example Surah 93 is one of my favorite examples of this. The good Samaritan story out of Christianity is a great example of this. Uh, the concept of tikkun olam out of Judaism is a great example of this. Those concepts are what we call the unique narratives of different traditions that lead to universal values. So just like there's a concept of zadaka in Judaism, there's a concept of zakat or sadaka in Islam, and they are very similar concepts. If we can nurture what I call a public language of faith that centers on these shared values, allowing people from different backgrounds to articulate their unique narrative to those shared values, then I think that we'll have a really robust discourse of religious pluralism in the public and a discourse that can, in fact, overcome the very dangerous discourse of religious totalitarianism. What would you actually say, though? Let's say I'm trying to convert you to my religion, and I'm being pretty pleasant but persistent. Right. What's one sentence you would say to me? I would say, and I, I do this all the time, I would say, I really admire Jesus as, as a figure 
who embodied mercy to other people. And, and I use his example of how he gave mercy to the leper, um, to uh, the people who were the least of these in his area. I would use I, – I, th- those examples inspire me. And then I would tell a story and I think it's a really powerful thing to be able to tell stories that other people resonate with. And, and I'll just tell a quick story. There is a story that Sufi Muslims tell of Jesus that when Jesus was in the marketplace in Jerusalem and there were a group of people around him insulting him, Jesus in return blessed them. And when Jesus came back to his disciples, they said, how can you bless people who insult you? And Jesus said, I give only what I carry in my purse. And I have to tell you, Suzanne, I tell this story to evangelical Christians all the time. And oftentimes the response is not, yes, but you have to believe in Jesus the way that I do. The response is, my gosh, you have great admiration for my religious savior. And and although your admiration has a slightly different orientation than my admiration, at least we have found common ground on, on admiration for Jesus and on Jesus as a giver of mercy and on Jesus as an example to follow. And I think that, that those of us who believe in religious pluralism need to be rhetorically sophisticated. We need, to, we need to be rhetorically dexterous, and we need to be able to tell stories in a way, as Edward Markham said, and I have this quote in my book, um, he drew a circle that shut me out, heretic rebel, a thing to flout, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that drew him in. We're coming to the end of our program, Ibu. Could you distill into a sentence or two what you most wish for people to remember? That there is a coming movement of religious pluralism led by today's 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds, which will characterize the 21st century, inshallah, God willing. And we need people to participate in it. We need people to go to our website, www.ifyc.org. We need people to pray for it, and we need people to be leaders in it. What are some of the resources at your website? Well, we nobody is born with the skills of building religious pluralism. So we have guides on our website of, of how to run an interfaith service project. Uh, we have a number of speeches and articles uh, by me that kind of articulate uh, stories of religious pluralism. Um, we have great stories of young people on our website. Um, we have a map of different uh, interfaith youth projects that have happened all over the world. We coordinate a campaign called the Days of Interfaith Youth Service, which happened in nine countries. And you can see stories from all those different countries on our website. So, you know, come to our website. It's a, it's a great place to, to learn more about the movement and to learn how you can advance it, either by bringing the Interfaith Youth Corps to do a speech and a training in your city or um, uh, learning how you can actually you can be an architect of a cathedral of religious pluralism. Dr. Ibu Patel, author of Acts of Faith, would you be willing to read the poem that's at the conclusion of your book? I would love to. And let me tell just a brief story about this poem. Um, My wife and I, not long after September 11th, went to southern Spain, Andalusia. And we went there because we wanted to, uh, to be in an area that Muslims had had played a significant part in, and this is six or seven hundred years ago, that was characterized by pluralism. After September 11th, we were so heart-stricken that uh, we wanted to be uh, where Islam had been a nurturer of pluralism. 
and in southern Spain in a small cafe run by Moroccans in the city of, of uh, Granada, I saw this poem by Ibn Arabi. My heart has grown capable of taking on all forms. It is a pasture for gazelles, a table for the Torah, a convent for Christians, Kaaba for the pilgrim. Whichever the way love's caravan shall lead, that shall be the way of my faith. That's Dr. Ibu Patel, founder and executive director of the Interfaith Youth Corps, an organization that encourages religious young people to actually strengthen their religious identities and at the same time foster inter-religious understanding and service. Dr. Potel is a co-editor of the book Building the Interfaith Youth Movement, Beyond Dialogue to Action, and he's the author of Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation. Links to both of his books, as well as to the Interfaith Youth Corps website and other resources can be found at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Peace Talks Radio is produced by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. We count on tax-deductible contributions from people like you to keep our program on the air and available online. So I'd like to invite you to consider a contribution in any amount. You can charge it to your credit card on our secure website or find out where to mail a check. Just follow the link Contribute on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can hear all the programs in our series, read partial transcripts, order CDs, sign up for a podcast or a monthly newsletter all at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Our theme music was written and performed by Ali Adelman. We had technical assistance in Chicago from Daniel Epstein. Our host today was Suzanne Kreider. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening. <laughs>